And in your Bible, the book of Acts chapter number 10. Acts chapter number 10. I'm going to be preaching out of, um, I'm going to be preaching on the subject of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, how novel, huh? To preach on Christ during uh, the month of December. But I think uh, you can't preach on him enough, can we? So today I want to talk to you about the prophesied Christ, the prophesied Christ, one of the strongest evidence, evidences of the Christian faith that we have is the wonderful prophecies about our Lord Jesus. Stand with me, if you will, please. We're in Acts chapter 10, and we're in verse 34, Acts 10, and verse number 34. Then Peter opened his mouth and said, of a truth, I perceive that God is no respecter of persons. But in every nation, he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted with him. The word which God sent unto the children of Israel, preaching peace by Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. That word, I say, you know, which was published throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power, who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. And we are his witnesses of all things which he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they slew and hanged on a tree. Him God raised up the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but unto witnesses chosen before of God, even to us who did eat and drink with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach unto the people and to testify that it is he which was ordained of God to be the judge of the quick and dead. And here's the phrase I want you to really focus on. To him give all the prophets witness. To him give all the prophets, referring to the Old Testament prophets. To him give all the prophets witness that through his name, whosoever believeth on him, in him, shall receive remission of sins. And you may be seated. Thank you. Right now, there are over 7 billion persons living on planet Earth. And yet, in spite of 7 billion people, that amount is just incomprehensible, isn't it? But in spite of 7 billion people living on the Earth, if I know five facts about any person, I can communicate with them. I can send them a letter. I can get hold of them. I can identify them. I can make a positive identification of them with just seven facts. Let me illustrate it for you. Let's say you're living over in Asia somewhere, and you decide you want to write me a letter. And so you sit down, write the letter, and you address the letter to me. And of the seven billion people living on the planet, I'm going to get that letter if you have seven facts that you know about me. What would those facts be? Well, 
When I go to the mailbox to pick up my mail, I look at the top line, don't you? But the people at the post office look at the bottom line. And they look at the country if it's coming, if it's international mail. And so at the bottom of the letter, it would say USA, the bottom of the address, USA. You see, there are over 200 countries in the world, but there's only one USA. And so we've now separated all the countries of the world away, and now we're focusing on just one of those 200 countries. Then the next line on the letter is, it gets to the United States, and it will say state, and there are 50 states. But now we're going to separate away 49 of those states because it's going to say USA, and the next thing is going to be South Carolina, S-C. And then the letter's going to come to South Carolina. We've eliminated 200 countries and 49 states in our process so far. And it says Florence. And so it comes to the city of Florence. There are 270 incorporated municipalities in South Carolina. But it doesn't go to any of those. We eliminate 269 of those, and the letter comes to Florence, South Carolina, USA. And then in the city of Florence, there are six postal zones representing 88,459 people. And so it comes to one of those postal zones, 29505 is my zone. And so it comes to that zone, and they look then at the street. And the street uh, is there, and there are over 2,000 streets in the city of Florence. Did you know that? And so now we've eliminated all those streets except my street. And now they look at my street, and there's 10 houses on my street. I counted them yesterday. 10 houses on my street, and so we've eliminated nine of them because it gives the number of my street. And now they look at the top line, and it says Bill, not Norma. And so it's my, it's directed to me. And with seven facts, the country, the state, the city, the zip, the street, the house, and the individual, that letter has been separated from seven billion other people who live on this planet. Isn't that interesting? Now, a good detective doesn't even need seven facts. A good detective says, if I can get two or three good clues, I can probably identify that criminal and lock him up. Now, if that be true with seven facts or just fewer than that, what about if I have 333 facts? I ought to be able to identify somebody with a very, very positive identification, should I not? And there are 333 prophecies of the Lord Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. So if you have 333 characteristics or facts that are listed or named about someone, it shouldn't be real hard to give a very, very positive identification of that person, should it? And that's what we have in the prophecies about the Lord Jesus Christ. So my aim today in this message is to absolutely remove every doubt from your mind, if you have any, about Jesus Christ being 
the one who the Bible says he was and who he is. Now, in your program, open it up there, and I listed 40 of those prophecies. Now, today, I want to go over all 333 of them, <laughs> but I'm not going to. I want, I'm going to go over 40 of them, though, with you, and you can follow me. They're going to be on the screens, or you can take your program because I wanted to write them down. And the reason we wrote all those prophecies and uh, Gay told me this morning, please, please, please tell me there's not any changes on that PowerPoint that you're going to pull out one of them. And I said, no, we're going to stick with them. But I listed those because I think that's something you might want to cut out and glue it in the back of your Bible or stick it somewhere at home where you can keep it because this is such powerful evidence that Jesus Christ is who the Scripture says He is. And there are 333 prophecies, as I said, but those 333 prophecies overlap a lot. In other words, there'll be several different places in the Old Testament. It'll say that Jesus was going to be born of the tribe of Judah. It might say that 10 times. So you don't have 333 separate prophecies. You have 333 prophecies that deal with the first coming of the Lord Jesus but I've picked out what I think are the 40 that absolutely, absolutely categorically supply the evidence that Jesus Christ is who the Bible says He is. Now, follow with me. I got this list, by the way, from an old preacher in Denver, Colorado named Fred John Meldo. And he wrote a little booklet that my dad had as a preacher many years ago when dad died now, all, I got many of his books, and this was among those books. And so it's an old tattered little pamphlet now about 60 years old or something. Dad had it a long time before I got it. But it, it listed all of these, and it's just such a blessing. I'm going to quickly go through them. Now, follow with me, if you will. I'm not going to read all the numbers. That will, that will be laborious. I'm going to read the books, and you have the numbers, though, if you want to reference them. In Genesis chapter 3, the Bible said that Jesus would be the seed of the woman. And then in Genesis 22, it says that he would be the seed of Abraham, meaning he would be a descendant of Abraham. Now, if you go, and don't do it right now, but if you wanted to go to the book of Matthew chapter 1, the New Testament begins with a genealogy, doesn't it? And people skip those genealogies. It's like reading a Hebrew telephone directory. You, you, don't have, you don't want to do that. But those genealogies are there for a reason. They are extremely significant. Those genealogies give us the lineage or the descendants down from certain people to our Lord Jesus Christ. And the Bible prophesied that he would be a descendant of Abraham. And you read Genesis or, pardon me, Matthew chapter 1, and you will see that Jesus is exactly that. In, Gen in Psalm number 132, it says he's of the seed of David. And if you'll read the genealogy in Luke 3, it tra traces him back 14 generations to David, 14 more to Abraham, 14 more to Adam. So Jesus Christ came from Adam through Abraham, 
through, uh, through David and down to the time when he was born. Look with me, if you will, in Genesis 49, and he will be a member of the tribe of Judah. There were 12 tribes, you know, of Jews. Jesus came from the tribe of Judah. Daniel prophesied. Now, all these were written hundreds and thousands of years before he came, of course. This is prophecy. This is pre-written history. So, God is telling us these facts, but Jesus hasn't been born yet. And he's of the tribe of Judah. Daniel 9 says he'll be born 483 years. It gives the exact year of his birth. 483 years after the command to build the city, the city walls, the streets of Jerusalem. Now, that happened. If you want another reference there, you can write down Nehemiah 2 and 8. That's when that commandment came forth. And so we know exactly the fulfillment of those 483 years. And then in Isaiah 7, it says he will be born of a virgin. That could only be said about one person who ever lived in all of history. Micah 5 and 2 gives the place of his birth. He will be born in the village of Bethlehem of Judah. Now, Bethlehem is a small, insignificant little town. At the time of the Lord Jesus Christ, it had, they said, about 1,500 inhabitants. That's just a wide place in the road, really, isn't it? That's what we would say today. You'd, you'd hardly slow down. There wouldn't even be a stoplight there. That's not even a one McDonald's town. And so Bethlehem is just a little wide spot in the road. But of all the places on the planet that he could be born, the prophet says it's going to be in that place. And he prophesied that about 700 years before Jesus was born. In Micah 5 and 2, and there's the place of his birth. In Psalm 72, it said that great men and kings would visit him. And if you'll read Matthew 2 and 1, the wise, referring to the wise men. They were great men, and they were even sort of minor kings. Hosea 11 and 1, it said that after his birth, he would go to Egypt to escape the wrath of a king. You know the story of how Herod wanted to kill the boy babies, and he did kill all the, of them in a wide area there. Josephus said about 200 boy babies were murdered by Herod at that time. But Joseph took the Lord Jesus and Mary to Egypt. You know the story, and uh, he escaped his hand. Now, I've, I've put in a New Testament one, Matthew 2, 22 and 23, because it tells the story of Joseph and Mary are now ready to return home. But instead of going back to Bethlehem, where you might think they would have gone because that was their place of residence according to the census, they went to Nazareth up in the north because the king had changed. Herod had died. His son, who was even more bloodthirsty than he, was on the throne. And so they decided to go up into the Galilee where he doesn't have any authority. And so you see the prophets said he would be from Nazareth. Jeremiah 31 says that a jealous king would murder the newborns. There's another reference to that. Isaiah 40 said he would have a forerunner. It's not talking about a Toyota SUV, by the way. The forerunner is John the Baptist, and he came before the Lord to prepare the way for him. 
In uh, Deuteronomy 18 and 18, he would be a prophet like Moses. And Jesus, recently I've preached through Luke, and I've emphasized how many times Jesus prophesied himself. And then if we go down to Isaiah 9, his ministry would be centered out of Galilee in his early ministry. Zechariah 9 says his ministry would later move to Jerusalem, where his ministry then would involve his going to the temple every day. And in Haggai 2, he would enter the temple, and in Psalm 69, he would demonstrate zeal for the, ha- for the house of the Lord. What that means is it's referring to when he cleansed the temple and drove the money changers out of there. Did you know that was prophesied in the Old Testament hundreds of years before it actually occurred? Even these little small incidental biblical stories that we read about in the life of Christ, they were prophesied. Now, why were they prophesied? Because the Lord is giving an absolutely infallible uh, uh, identification of who this Messiah, this figure is going to be when he comes so that nobody could ever question who the Son of God come to the earth would be. And so in Psalm 78, it says his teaching would be characterized by parables. Read the Gospels over and over and over Jesus primarily used parable stories for his teaching, to illustrate his teaching. Isaiah 35, 5 and 6 says that his ministry would be characterized by miracles. It never says that in anywhere in the Bible about anybody else's ministry, but Jesus would perform all those miracles, and you know about those. Psalm 69 says he would be hated without a cause. And his whole life was, in essence, a life of sadness. He was hated without a cause. By the way, he's still hated without a cause today, isn't he? And that was a prophecy. If we look in Psalm 69, 8, he would be rejected by his own brothers. Did you know Jesus has five brothers? Their names are listed in the Gospels. And John 7 and 5 says they did not believe in Jesus. Throughout his whole ministry, they rejected him. Only after he died and resurrected from the grave did his brothers believe on him. One of them was James, who became the pastor of the church at Jerusalem after Peter had left there and moved to Babylon. And so James knew more about him than anybody else being reared with him as little boys in the same household. And that was all prophesied here. In Psalm 118, he would be rejected by the ruling class of his day. And we know that it was the religious leadership, the Sanhedrin, the priest, the ruling class of Israel who rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. The common people, it says, in fact, the quote is, the common people heard him gladly. They identified with Jesus. They were not the ones crucifying him. It was the leadership, the ruling class of people of that day. Psalm 41, he would be betrayed by a friend, the prophecy of Judas betraying him. Zechariah 13, he would be forsaken by his own disciples. And the Bible says they all left him and fled when when the trial began there for the Lord. And then Zechariah 11 said he would be sold for 30 pieces of silver. This is 500 years before he lived. In fact, at that time, the going price for a slave would be 
20 pieces of silver. But inflation is always around, you know. And Zechariah would have had no reason to say 30 pieces of silver. The market at that time was 20 pieces of silver. But he said 30 pieces of silver. And he identified exactly the price for which Jesus would be sold 500 years or so before the Lord was sold, betrayed by Judas. Zechariah 11, 13 says that they would take the money after Judas brought it back and threw it down on the floor. They would take that money and they would purchase a potter's field, a burial field for the indigent, if you will. And that's exactly what happened, prophesied, though, in the Old Testament. Micah 5 and 1 said they would smite him on his cheeks. Isaiah 50 said they would spit on his face. Isaiah 52 says he would be beaten to the point that he would become unrecognizable. You read that in the, you read that in the New Testament when you read about the crucifixion. In Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53, you have long descriptions of a crucifixion event. Now, here's what's significant, particularly the one in Psalm 22. Psalm 22 was written by David. David lived 1,000 years before Messiah was born. Now, follow with me. At the time David wrote that, the manner of execution was stoning or some other method of, of bringing about death in a criminal. It was not until the Romans came that the Jews ever heard of a crucifixion. Jews, the Jewish people did not crucify. They stoned people for execution. And so the Romans were the ones who brought crucifixion to the scene. They did it to intimidate and to bring fear to the population so they could control the population. And Psalm 22 written 1,000 years before Jesus Christ came, written hundreds of years before the Romans even became an empire, when crucifixion did not exist in the world. And yet the writer writes this description. If you look at that description, it can be nothing else than crucifixion, which is hundreds of years yet before its invention. Psalm 22, describing that, says his hands and his feet would be pierced. See, that's crucifixion. Psalm 34 said, though, that they would not break a bone in his body. And you know the story of how they came and looked at the other criminals, and they broke their knees so that they would collapse and die of suffocation. They came to Jesus, and he was already dead. So they didn't break his bones, a fulfillment of prophecy, because the Passover lamb could not have a broken bone. See, there it, it, it intersects with another truth there. Psalm 22 said he would suffer intense thirst during the crucifixion. Psalm 69 said he would be given vinegar to drink. How would anybody know the substance that would be given to a to a condemned man to drink 
hundreds of years in advance. How would anybody know that? Only God could do that. You see, does this ever confirm your faith in the Scriptures if you'll think about these things and, and begin to connect them together? Isaiah 53 would be numbered with transgressors. This past week, we did our Wednesday night study on Luke, and we're at the crucifixion there. And we read where that they crucified him with two criminals, one on either side of him. A fulfillment of the prophecy here of Isaiah 53. Psalm 22 again says that his executioners would gamble for his clothing. Do you think those Roman soldiers, Jesus Christ hanging up here on the cross, he's about to die, and one of those Roman soldiers looks at the other and says, well, the Bible says that we're supposed to gamble now for his garments. It's ludicrous, isn't it? Roman soldiers didn't read the Bible. They didn't know a thing about the Hebrew Scriptures. They would not have believed one single letter of them. But they got down and took their dice and said, his garment is valuable. It won't be if we split it up. So what are we going to do? Well, we're going to gamble for it, and somebody will be the lucky winner and get that beautiful garment that that woman knitted for him. Isaiah 53, be buried with the rich. Psalm 16 and 10, his body would not see corruption or decomposition. There's a veiled uh, resurrection prophecy. Isaiah 53, 10 to 11 said, is a prophecy again of his resurrection, sort of veiled. But the greatest prophecies of the resurrection of Jesus were by himself. And they give it more validity than anybody else. And I want you for a moment to turn back to Matthew chapter 16 in your Bible. And I want you to see one of them. There are eight of them listed in the Bible, eight times in the Gospels, eight times now, Jesus stops and tells his disciples what is going to happen, that he's going to be crucified, and he's going to be resurrected, and so on. Let's read what it says in Matthew 16 and 21. Matthew 16 and 21, look at it in your Bible. From that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how he must go into Jerusalem, and he must suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and rise again the third day. And Peter took him, grabbed him by his garment, probably his lapels, and began to rebuke him. Lord, be it far from you. You can't do that. And Jesus said to him, get behind me, Satan. It's satanic to try to keep me from carrying out my Father's will. This is why I came. I came to die. But I will be resurrected. I will be resurrected. I will be raised from the dead. And eight times in the Gospels, Jesus tells his disciples one year, two years, three years before his demise, he tells them, I'm going to go up to Jerusalem. I'm going to suffer many things. I'm going to be killed. I'm going to be buried for three days, and then I'm going to rise from the dead. Significant, wouldn't you think? Psalm 68 and 18, number 40. 
He would ascend into the heavens. You'll see that fulfilled in the book of Acts chapter 1. And there are witnesses to his ascension, just like there were witnesses of the resurrection. Now, I started out describing somebody mailing me a letter from the heart of Asia, China somewhere. There's 7 billion people on the planet. But if you have seven facts, you can separate me out from all those other 7 billion people, and that letter will arrive in my mailbox. Seven facts. I've listed 40. I've listed 40. You don't believe in Jesus? By what logic would you deny him? If seven facts will find any person on this planet, what about 40 facts? Does that make any logic and any sense to anybody? You see, when people don't believe in Jesus Christ, it's because they choose not to believe Jesus Christ. They don't study the evidence for Jesus Christ. Now, you've read all those 40, and and that's kind of a laborious thing for a preacher to take people through all of that on a Sunday morning. I understand that. The other side of that is, I wanted you to be confronted with those 40 facts at one point in your Christian life, in your Christian existence, because you see, in my mind, that is absolutely conclusive evidence that Jesus Christ is who the Bible says he is. And I don't know, I don't know how anybody could deny that, how you take all those facts and pull them together. It could only be one person in all of history that is who, that is being described by those facts. So Jesus Christ ascended them back to heaven. Now, the apostles began to go out and to preach to the people of the world. They went to all these different countries and so on. You know the history of that. Now, listen to this. This is my second point, really, and it won't be as long as the first one, but it's the reason for it. Fulfilled prophecy then, these 40 fulfilled prophecies and more too, became the main argument the apostles used to identify Christ as the Messiah after his resurrection. They continually went back to those Old Testament prophets, and they preached it to the people and said, see, here's what it said in Psalms. Here's what it said in Isaiah. Here's what it said in Genesis. Here's what it said back here in Hosea and all these Old Testament prophecies. Here's what it said about him. And see, he fulfilled that. And this was their basis of logic because he was not here. He had ascended. A leading evangelical pastor over in Georgia said, and I quote, Peter James, Paul, elected to, his quote, unhitch the Christian faith from the Jewish scriptures. And my friends, we must do that as well, end of quote. Boy, what tragedy that a preacher would make a statement like that. You see, the apostles' argument for who Jesus Christ was, what was their argument? that he fulfilled all those prophecies, that it was he who was the only one who could fit that 40-piece description that comes 
that, that I shared with you today. And so, take your Bible and go with me just for a moment. You're in Acts or Matthew, go back to Acts chapter 2, and let's see how they used that what I've preached to you today in their witnessing and in their proclamation of the gospel of Christ. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 25, it's the great day of Pentecost. And what does Peter preach on that day? Well, he talks about Jesus, verse 24, being raised up, loosed from the pains of death. And look at verse 25, for David speaketh concerning him. He goes back and quotes what David says as evidence for who Jesus Christ is. And then turn the page to Acts chapter 3 and verse 22. And boy, look here. And this is Peter again preaching to the people when he's about to get arrested. In Acts 3 and 22, he quotes Moses. And in verse 24, he quotes Samuel. And in verse 25, he quotes Abraham. His whole his whole apologetic, his whole argument is that Jesus Christ is the only person who could fulfill all of those prophecies, the only person who ever lived who could fulfill those. Look in chapter 4 and verse 11. This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has now become the head of the corner. And he quotes Psalm 118 there. And we read... Acts 10, where it says, to him give all the prophets witness. And then I want you to turn to one more. Keep turning to chapter 17. And the apostle Paul is on his missionary journeys, and he's preaching the gospel over the world. And in Acts chapter 17 and verse 1, now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, and they came to Thessalonica, cities in Greece, there was a synagogue of the Jews there. And Paul as his manner was, his custom on the Sabbath was to go to church. And he went into them and three Sabbath days, now listen with me, think with me, three Sabbath days in a row he reasoned with them out of the Scripture. Well, the only Scripture they have is the Old Testament. He took those prophecies and he logically put them together and demonstrated to them with powerful, spirit-filled argument and logic, Jesus Christ is the only one who fulfilled all those prophecies in history. Now, I've spent all that time telling you what I want to tell you now in five, six minutes. Number one, four conclusions I draw from what I've said today. Four conclusions. You... I think we'll draw with me from those scriptures. One, when I see those 40 things lined up and interface like they are, pointing to one person in all of history, number one, that makes me understand the Bible is the inerrant, inspired Word of God. That that builds my confidence in my scripture like nothing else could. How these people writing hundreds and thousands of years before the Holy Spirit revealed to them these facts that would occur in the life of Christ. And they all come together and they interface just like the, 
just like the teeth in a gearbox would interface. Number two, not only does it, is my conclusion that the Bible is the inspired Word of God, but that the God of the Bible is the true and living God. The God of the Bible is the true and the living God. No other God knows the future. Do you understand if you look at the Buddhist scriptures or the Hindu scriptures or the Muslim scriptures, there's no prophecy. There's no prophecy in any of the cults. There is no prophecy by any religion in the world except Christianity. And you know why we're the only ones who have prophecy? Because we're the only ones who worship a God who knows the end from the beginning, the alpha and omega of history. That's who we worship. And he knows what's going to happen now and a thousand years hence. So my conclusion, number one, the Bible's the inerrant Word of God. Number two, the God of the Bible is the true and living God. And number three, the God of the Bible is the all-knowing, all-powerful God who controls all events. Now think of how he controls events here. For example, you have uh, Mary is months pregnant. She's great with child, the Bible says, means she's showing, she's out there. And the Romans come out with this census. And you have to go back to your family's, uh, the, 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 their home, their, their, their uh, linear home. They, you have to go all the way back to them. Now, Joseph would have been crazy to put Mary on that donkey as the Christmas cards picture or to have her walk 60 or 70 miles to go to Bethlehem when she's five, six, seven months pregnant? Why in the world would he do that? Only one reason. It was required by the Roman law. And so God's prophecies have said the baby has to be born in Bethlehem, not Nazareth. It would have been normal to, to have the baby in Nazareth and then go to Bethlehem. Uh-uh. The day of the census has come. The Romans are cruel. You've got to be there. God is controlling the circumstances, you see, to get them to Bethlehem. The temple housed all the genealogical records of the entire nation of Israel. The whole lineage from Adam all the way down to the present time, 70 A.D., were housed in that temple. The Jews were known by all historians, secular historians as well, the most, meticu most meticulous record-keeping about their family lineages, their genealogies. And Titus came and destroyed the temple, 70 A.D. But he didn't destroy the temple while Jesus was alive. The Lord controlled those events. Just a few years after Jesus' life, the temple and all those records were destroyed. But we can have those genealogical records because Jesus lived through that period of time, and they were recorded. God controlled the events of Jesus' life and the prophetic events. And so now he's hanging on a cross, and he's limp, and he's dead. And who is it that comes and takes him down because most of the disciples have fled? 
Well, there's a man named Nicodemus who was a member of the council. And there's a man named Joseph of Arimathea. And the Bible says he's a rich man. They hadn't planned on Jesus' death. It wasn't like they were looking forward to that. And so now he's suddenly been taken and he's been crucified in these mock trials. And somebody says, we need to take his body down and bury it reverently. So what are we going to do with it? And Joseph is on the spot because God controls all the events. I got a tomb. I'm prepared really for myself and my family, but I'm going to let him have it. And God had prepared him a tomb with the rich man, just as the prophecy said. So we're celebrating his coming into the world. We're celebrating his birth this week. We're celebrating it tonight. We did yesterday afternoon. And through the season, we're going to be talking about this prophesied Jesus. What I want you to remember, the reason we honor him is there's no doubt about it. He is the only one in history that meets the qualifications of all the prophets. It had to be him. Nobody else qualified. Now, do you believe on him in the sense that the Bible refers to believing to salvation? Not just maybe, yeah, I believe there was a historical Jesus, but the Bible says that we believe on him in a certain way for salvation. And that certain way is that we depend upon what he did for us. And we cease depending on anything that we can do, any ritual, any religion, any good works. And we depend on what he did in six lonely hours on the cross. If you've never received him in that way, I sure want you to come today. What reason would you not have for believing in Jesus Christ after I've shown you 40 passages that were written hundreds of years before he lived. And each of those 40 were fulfilled specifically in his lifetime. How could you not say he's the Son of God and how could you not trust him today? Stand to your feet with me if you will, please.